Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Doug, and I am the middle school pastor. Um, and yeah, just pretty fun. I enjoy that role, and uh, I've got to be the kind of the in-between worship pastor for the past year or so, which is really cool too, which actually I did want to bring up and mention with Rod and with Carl and Judy uh, and all of our worship leaders who make this possible because I could tell you it's not, it's not something that, that is easy to put together, especially as volunteers. They do an awesome job, so they are, they are fantastic. Well, this morning we are going to be looking um, at Jesus' conversation with Pilate. Now, this is an interesting one, and I wanted to give a little bit of a backstory to it first before we really get into it about how the Gospels work together. And a lot of you have probably heard of this before, that about what's called the harmony of the Gospels. Now, the Gospels themselves, um, they're sort of individual looks at Jesus' life and ministry. And as we look at them, we see that each one has sort of a specific bent. Now, they're all looking at Jesus, and they're all pointing to this is the Savior, but each of them has a little different flavor to it. So we look at Matthew, he's talking about the kingdom of God. So his, what he talks about is huge as far as tons of Old Testament scripture, tons of prophecy, tons of stuff about how Jesus is the king. He's the, the king that they've been looking forward to, the one who would come in the line of David. And then you look at Mark and he, he talks so much about how Jesus is the perfect savior. In fact, as the servant, right, the, the servant leader as a representative to us. Mark also is very short because he's picking out very specific events that happened in Jesus' life. And then we look at the book of Luke. Luke is talking about how Jesus is the son of man, talking about he's, it's the second of the two um, genealogies. So Matthew has the genealogy of Jesus through the line of David and the Israelites. Luke has the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam because he's like, this isn't just the Savior of the Jews is the Savior of the world right here. So the Son of Man, that Savior, the Christ who came down. Um, And then you look at John, and John is the most different one because the book of John focuses a lot more on Jesus' ministry and especially that last week um, of Jesus' life while he's in Jerusalem just before he goes to the cross, which means that between all four of these, you get these different perspectives. And it's not that any one is, you know, the right one. In fact, we have all four of them in the Bible because all four of them are useful. All four of them were given to us by the Holy Spirit. But that means that certain ones are going to leave out aspects because they're like, no, no, we don't, I'm, that's not the focus I'm going for here. Especially, you know, you look at Mark and it's like he gives seven specific miracles that Jesus does and he doesn't talk at all about Jesus' birth. Like none. He's like, I'm not, I don't, that's not a big deal to me. That's not what I'm focused on here. But Matthew and Luke, they're like, no, no, no. That's where I want to focus, because my audience, Matthew's audience was the Jews, Luke's audience was more of the Gentiles, and so they're like, no, 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 we need to prove that this is the Savior of the Jews. We need to prove that this is the Savior of the world, and so we're going to give all this backstory. And it's sort of like, I don't know if you remember, for those of you who are, who are Gen Z, you're not going to probably remember these, but millennials and older, we all remember, um, these, there's these cool little pictures that there used to be, um, and it was called... Um, what was it? It was the, the, the secret eye or something like that, some weird name for it. But basically, you're supposed to look at these things, and in there somewhere is a bunch of sharks. Now, now, it's not that you look at it and you see sharks. It's that you're supposed to look at it and allow your eyes to slightly cross. Oops, I'm messing up with my mic. And you, you let your eyes slightly cross, and you're supposed to get like really close to it, they said, and then back off slowly, and then you're looking at it, and you're like, oh, I see it. There it is. There's, there's sharks in there, or there's a unicorn, or there's a dolphin, or there's my mom. That's weird. No. So you're looking at these things, 
and you see something different because you're putting, what's actually happening is the patterns are overlapping and the parts where they overlap the same pops out of the picture and the parts where it's different becomes the background of the picture. And that's kind of like how the harmony of the gospels works where you've got these different perspectives and the parts that are different are the kind of flavor for those specific gospels, the, the, the intent that they have for their specific gospels. The parts where they overlap, however, really pop out. It's like, okay, everybody wanted to emphasize this part. And there are some specific things in there. Feeding of the 5,000 is one of them. Some of the other teachings. Um, and in particular, Jesus' conversation with Pilate is in there. Now, I will say, in some of them, it's very short. And they focus on one little aspect that we'll get to. In other ones, it's a little bit more drawn out. And that's what we're going to get to here in just a second. Um, I did want to mention, though, that each one of these brings up some specific things. So, of course, Matthew, he's, he's focused on the Jewish audience, so he includes more mention of the rituals that were a, a big deal at that time, um, the, the tradition of trading one, or the release of a prisoner at the time of the Passover. Um, he mentions how the Jews accept the death of their king on themselves. So the washing of Pilate, like Pilate washing his hands and saying, this isn't mine anymore, it's on you guys, and they're like, yeah, it's on us, kill him. That's in Matthew. Because it's a big deal to him, because he's like, no, no, the Jewish people said this, you crucified your king. And then Mark, it's the shortest account, it's every other gospel has what Mark mentions. Um, Luke includes more of the historical details, like where Jesus is sent off to Herod. Um, John includes a, more of a private converse, more of the private conversation with Pilate. And so that's where we're going to focus today, because that's the piece that we want to really hone in on. So if you have your Bible with you, hopefully you do. Um, middle schoolers, I'm sorry, we're not handing out candy if you brought your Bible. It's kind of a tradition of ours. Um, but if you have your Bible, open up to John, and we're looking in chapter 18. For some reason I had it open to 16. Chapter 18. Now we're going to be reading actually quite a bit. So it's John 18, 28 through 19, 16. And the reason I wanted to read so much is because there's multiple pieces of this conversation. It's not all at once. But do know this. When Jesus talks with, private, with Pilate, it's in private. He's, he doesn't speak with Pilate in front of anybody else. And, and we'll get to why that happens in a minute. So um, John chapter 18, hopefully that gave you enough time to open up to it. So starting in verse 28, it says this. Then they, and the they is the, the Jewish leaders, um, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For, the purpose I was, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man from, for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown and thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now you notice that there are some things that are not mentioned in this. The, like I said, Jesus was sent over to Herod, um, and Pilate sent him up there because he was like, well, he's from Galilee, so Herod should be the one really in charge of this. And then Herod's like, yeah, I didn't find anything wrong with him. Send him back. And then Pilate's, okay, Herod and I didn't find anything wrong with him. Um, along with the washing of the hands, um, we see that in Matthew as well. So we, there are some pieces missing, but I really want to focus on this conversation that Pilate has with Jesus. Now, a little backstory for you. Pilate was not a guy who was very much liked by the Jews. Uh, he'd only been in power for about four years at this time, and already he had totally ticked them off. Like, he had messed with their ceremonies. He had brought in um, these shields with the image of Caesar on it, and in case you don't know, in the Old Testament, you look at the Ten Commandments, shall make no graven image, right? The, the Romans believed that Caesar was a god, so bringing in this image of Caesar into Jerusalem was, was it was heresy. Like, you just don't do that. You shall make no graven image of any god, let alone a, a false god. And so it really ticked the Jews off. And then later on, there was a whole fight about this. Pilate ended up putting some Jews to death, and... Needless to say, they didn't like each other. Uh, in fact, even Herod didn't like Pilate until after this event right here, which is really interesting. So Pilate wasn't liked by them. Also, Pilate got into some trouble with the higher-ups, um, and so he was, he was a little bit, you might say he was under pressure from all sides. He had his, 
His Caesar, who really wasn't a big fan of him, he had the people he was supposed to rule over him, not a big fan of him, and he was known as a harsh and unbending man. You can kind of understand why. Uh, he's, he's in a really tough spot, and so he just, he just uses his power. He throws his weight around all the time. Well, when we look at all these different things, we see that God put this all together for a purpose. See, God prepares, he prepared the people here. He prepared every last one of them. And you might think, well, this is just a hodgepodge of stuff that happened. This, this is, it's, like, it just seems like everybody's just kind of stumbling around and nobody really gets it, nobody really understands. But the crazy part is, you see every last detail, God arranged. He prepared the people in the situation. He prepared the pilot to have no real authority here. He prepared the Jewish people to have a lot of authority over Pilate somehow, even though Pilate was in charge of them. He even prepared them in the sense of delivering, him, them, delivering Jesus over to Pilate. Something interesting is that, so we saw right here, and I love these, these crazy little details that, that are in there, and you really have to dig in to find. The Jews said, we, can't, we, are not, we aren't allowed to, uh, to kill anybody. That's the Romans, they, and they did have a law. That was a real thing. The Romans said, you don't get to execute anybody. We are in, in control here. You can do other stuff, but we are the ones who execute. If you need somebody executed, you come to us. And so it seems like, okay, they're just following this rule. No, they're not. They are using this as an excuse. They're using it as an excuse to get somebody else to do their dirty work. Because if you look in, in Acts chapter 7, you see Stephen the martyr. Stephen the martyr was put to death by the Jewish leaders, those priests and those elders, for almost the exact same reason as Jesus died, for claiming that Jesus was God. So they were willing to put him to death, but they weren't willing to put Jesus to death. Why? It's really, really interesting. It's because it was the Passover. The Passover meant that there was this big ceremony that was happening, right? It was the day of preparation. We already read that. And they're like, okay, we can't even step foot into Pilate's house because that would make us unclean, and then we can't participate in Passover. So why did they have somebody else crucify Jesus? Because to kill somebody, even to put their hands on somebody who's dead, would to be to make them unclean. And it shows so much of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 23, where he had, we have the seven woes of the, of the Pharisees. All these different things. Woe to you for dot, dot, dot. Because you're like a whitewashed tomb. You have these ceremonies. You have these rituals, these things that you follow day after day after day. So you can appear to be holy when in fact you're dead inside. You're looking like you're following all the rules, but really you're just trying to kill somebody without cause. And you're trying to make somebody else do it. That's crazy that you find that detail in there. And it actually states it too. And then along with that, we see Pilate. And Pilate and the Jews and, and the Jewish leaders, they, they seem to be at odds with each other, but really, they have been prepared by God himself for this very moment. Now, we move on to, uh, to the next part here. We see some crazy stuff as well. Pilate tried to release Jesus. In fact, he stated that he was going to release Jesus. There are seven different times, and I'm not, I'm, they're going to be on the screen here so you can see, and maybe you can write down, because we just don't have time to go through every last one of these, like, verse by verse. Write it down, okay? Never, never take anybody's word for it that, you know, hey, you know what the Bible says. No, you go look it up for yourself. But 
We don't have time to read it all right now, so write it down, go look it up afterwards. If you find something wrong, come find me, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Pilate, I found seven different times that he tried to release Jesus, or at minimum, at minimum, not have to take the blame for Jesus' death. So the first one is in Luke 23, verse 4, where he uses his authority as a judge. We see it here in this scripture as well in John, where he says, I found him innocent. My job is to be judge here, not guilty. That was the first one. Second one, he appeals to Herod, and this is in, in Luke 23, verse 7. He sends him off to Herod. Hey, this guy's from Galilee? Okay, well, then let's send him off to Herod, because Herod's in charge of Galilee in that area, so let him handle this. And I feel like this is one of those where he's just kind of like trying to get out of it. Like, all right, at least I don't have to make this judgment. Sends him off to Herod, <laughs> and then Herod turns around and sends him right back. He's like, I didn't find anything wrong. You go ahead and deal with it. Great. I'm sure Pilate was thinking that at that moment. But then he says, well, okay, so Herod didn't find any guilt in him. I didn't find any guilt in him. Hey, look, we're in agreement. He's innocent. No big deal. Didn't work. Crucify him. The fourth one, he tries to compromise by having Jesus beaten and mocked. Luke 23, 16, as well as in this scripture that we read. Hey, you know what I'm going to do for you? And actually, this is really interesting because Pilate himself says, I will have him beaten and then released. That's what I'm going to do. He lays it out to them. I'm going to, we're, going to, we're going to give you something here. I'm going to throw you a bone. We'll have him beaten. We'll have him, we'll, they'll make jokes about him, right? They'll, they'll totally, everybody's going to disown this guy for how much we're going to do to him. But I'm not going to kill him. And then we're going to let him go. Okay, guys? Crucify him. Then we get to the fifth one. He tries diplomatically to reason with them. Hey, 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 how about this? How about this? You know, you have this custom that we release somebody for you. I can release one of two people. Jesus, who was pretty innocent, I don't see anything wrong with him, or this dude Barabbas, like he's a murderer, he's, he is an insurgent, he's a, a thief, he's a, he's a bad dude. So which one do you want me to release for you? Barabbas. Dang it. Okay. Well, how about, then, then he goes on to the sixth one. He tries to work with him. He says, okay, you know what? I released Barabbas for you. That should be enough. So what should we do with this guy over here? Let's just crucify him. And finally, Pilate gets to the last point where he just straight up tries guilting the Jews. He says, this isn't on me anymore. And this is in Matthew 27, verse 24, where he says he washes his hand. He literally brings out a bowl. And this was actually um, a Jewish tradition as well, where they would do this, where you could wash your hands as ceremonially, ceremonially. That's a hard word to say. Tries to, yeah, make it official. He tries to wash his hands and he says, this isn't on me anymore. This is on you. And what do the Jewish leaders say? It's on us and on our children. His blood be on us. Bring it on. Crucify him. And finally, Pilate says, I can't do anything else. Crucify him. Now, I don't think that Pilate's washing of his hands actually freed him of that guilt because it was still at his order that the Roman soldiers would do anything. They certainly wouldn't listen to the priests and the elders. But just like Jesus said, because Pilate was trying to release him, the greater sin was that of those who were unwavering in their decision to crucify their king. But Pilate wasn't let off the hook either. In the end, we see that God was sovereign. As much as Pilate was trying to do the right thing, it was his own sin that put him in this terrible situation. It was his own sin as a fallen human being trying to 
force his will upon the people. And it was also the Jews' own sin, those, those religious leaders that said, this is our town. This guy over here, Jesus, he's trying to make himself our king. I don't think so. And the sin of these two people, or two groups of people, I should say, led to a moment that God himself had ordained. The conversation with Pilate in John explains everything that would transpire. And when we look at this, John 19, verses 10 and 11, I'm going to read this again for you really quick. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate probably was a little bit aghast at that, but also he realized the spot that he was in. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. And yet, it didn't work. Why not? Because God was in charge. And you think this is, this is crazy to think of that. Pilate could have and did declare Jesus innocent. But it didn't work. It was because of how he had conducted himself before. He had what was called apparent authority. Now, this is fun. I'm going to give you a little example. Because I was, I was, as I was going through this and working through it, I was like, this is like really categories. And I looked it up, and there actually are categories of authority. Um, and so the best example I could think of, and my apologies to my parents, because I'm going to use them as an example. But hey, usually it's the other way around, right? The parent gets to make an example of their kid. Now I get to make an example of my parents. So there is apparent authority. Now, that's not parent authority. It's apparent so in other words, it's like perceived authority or stated authority, you might say. And that is like when I go over to my parents' house with my family, my authority over my children is a stated authority. I am their parent. They have to listen to me, right? Okay. Then there's what's called express authority. And then there's also what's called actual authority. Now, let's say I am wielding my apparent authority and I, my I'm like, it's 8 o'clock, it's time for the kids to go to bed. I call down in the basement, hey kids, come on up, time to get ready for bed, let's brush your teeth. And all of a sudden they come wandering in from outside with chocolate in their hands. And, (laughs) uh, where'd you get that chocolate? My children at that moment have what's called express authority. Express authority is authority that is given to them by somebody else. Okay? My children say, well, Poppy gave it to us. Poppy is my dad, okay? That's, that's the, what they call him. My dad has what is called actual authority. <laughs> actual authority means that you actually can wield this authority. He, you know, they, they come in and they're like, uh, Poppy gave this to us. Well, <laughs> well, it's actually bedtime. And then my dad will come in. Hey, we're going to go roast marshmallows. And can you just wait a minute just for a little bit? We're going to, they'll be fine. Yeah, but they really need to get to, we're leaving early in the morning. They'll be fine. It's good. And that's my sister laughing over there really loud because she knows exactly what this is like. And at that moment, I have only apparent authority. I have only stated authority. It means nothing. It means nothing whatsoever. And my children actually have more authority than I do at that moment. Now, that's actually what's going on here. We see that Pilate has this apparent authority. It's this stated authority. Well, I'm the ruler. I'm the governor. You must listen to me. He's innocent. Release him. And nobody did anything. 
And then the Jews have what is considered express authority. They have an authority. They don't even know really where it's from, but they have authority given to them. So they are actually in control over Pilate at that moment. They say, no, 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 crucify him. What the, the Jewish leaders didn't realize and what they probably would have been adamantly rejecting the, the theory of at that moment is that their authority actually came from Jesus, the one who they were trying to crucify. Jesus held the actual authority. Just like he said, you wouldn't have authority unless it was given to you from above. By that he means God. And Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus had the actual authority in this moment. He allowed for Pilate to be completely incapable of freeing him. That brings us to something very, very interesting. And I have a couple quotes here that I thought were, were really cool. Um, from a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Like many a politician, Pilate's record was in the way of his conscience. It's truly actually not that Pilate couldn't do anything. If he really wanted to at that moment, he could have told the Roman soldiers, get these guys out of here and release that dude. It's not on me. Release him. He's innocent. But truthfully, he felt powerless, even though he wasn't really powerless. And God knew that that's the way that it would, it would end up with him. And then also, and that's what we call the sin of omission. In other words, he wanted to do the right thing but he refused to because of his, in this case, probably his power and his prestige. He didn't want to give up because he knew that it would come back to bite him later on. And then we have the Jewish leader's sin of commission, which is directly taking the guilt of Jesus' death. Another quote, this is from um, an ancient historian, Jerome. He says, a fine inheritance the Jews leave to their children when he's talking about this moment. That's what they left to their children was the blood of Jesus on their heads. Now, I want you to know, this means that God can use even sin for his will. Don't hear me wrong here. God does not sin. He can't. He's incapable of it because it is contrary to who he is. But God can use sin. We see this easily in the book, or in um, the story of Joseph and, uh, and his brothers and at the end of the whole situation where he's sent into slavery and all this, and he ends up saving his brothers, he says, wait, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God can use even sin, even evil, even murder for his own purpose. There's no sin in my life or in your life that God can't turn around. Now, that doesn't mean we should go and sin. <laughs> Don't hear me wrong here. But it means that there is no moment in our lives where God isn't in control, even when we are rebelling against him. The Jews certainly were rebelling against him. Pilate was at least not helping him in any way. And yet God used it for his purpose. James 1, 13 through 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I want you to know something right here, right now. You and I are sinful to the core. There, there is no good in us. And that means that God doesn't have to cause anybody to sin in this situation here, even though they do, and even though that accomplishes God's will. He knows that they're going to do it anyway. 
All that he allows them is, truthfully, free will to reject him. And really, that's all the free will that we have because our sin is so ingrained in us. Ever since Adam and Eve took that fruit in the garden, mankind has wanted nothing but that which is evil. And the only reason anybody would be able to accomplish anything good would be by the grace of God himself. Even those who do not belong to him, God bestows his grace in a general way upon humankind to sustain us and to allow us to accomplish anything that might be good. And he can even use our sin to accomplish his will. Now, if God is sovereign, that means that God is necessarily good. And these points flow right one right into the other. If, our, if we are completely and absolutely sinful, God is completely and absolutely good. In fact, God couldn't be anything but good. And we talked about this at summer camp. It's a really fun philosophical thing to wrestle with in your brain, is think about how God created anything. How did he do it? He spoke, right? God cannot lie, because as soon as he says it, it is. As soon as God says, there's light, guess what? There's light. If he said, there's darkness, there would be darkness. When he said, let there be birds, guess what, birds? If he said, let there be clowns, there would be clowns, and we'd all be really upset about that, right? <laughs> kind of creepy. But he didn't, thank, thank God. We came up with that in our sinful hearts. Um, <laughs> but what God says is true. Necessarily, because God said it, not because it was already true, and then God just realized it. That's how we work. We operate by saying, oh, I've discovered this thing, and guess what? This is true. Not because I said it, but because I saw it. It's the other way around for God. God says, this is true, and it is so. Therefore, God cannot lie. God cannot be evil. Evil is deviancy. Who would God be deviant against? Himself? That doesn't make any sense. God is sovereign. God is necessarily good. And God can use the sin of humans as well as the good actions that he allows humans to make for his will. Every last bit of it comes together. Now, here's the part that I want you to take home. This little bit right here. God being sovereign is why we must worship him. Oftentimes, we, we, we focus on the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us, and that is, that is 100% wonderful to do. But a lot of times, we flip that around and say, because God loved me so much, I must be worth something, and therefore, he died for me, and therefore, I'm pretty awesome. Thank you, God, for making me awesome. But we do that in our minds. We say, oh, he thinks so much of me. If we are to worship God, we must start with the fact that God is good. Therefore, I will worship him. I am created to worship God. Did you know that? You were created for God. There is nothing that could be created that wouldn't exist for the sake of glorifying God because God created it all. How could he create something that in the end would not glorify himself? Our purpose is to glorify God. And we must recognize that. And that must be the beginning of our worship. And from that comes about the fact that I am absolutely sinful. There's nothing worthwhile inside of me. I am not worth anything. And yet, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. 
that is amazing. That's the, the amazing grace that we sing about. It's not about how awesome I am and God loves me. No, it's about how awesome God is. And for some reason, he loves me. I don't know why, but he just does because he created me. That's why. Not because he needed me. He created me to need him. And he saved me that I might fulfill that purpose. And when we start to see it that way, all of a sudden we don't see Jesus as this limp figure on a cross, as this purely suffering, incapable human being. We see him as the ultimate authority in the universe. He is the power in the universe that directs even the course of history itself and can take even the greatest sins that we have ever seen and turn them into something that is good. That is our God. That is the God that we worship. We can no more stop the will of God than we can keep the sun from burning. But as those who have a healthy fear of the sun can find pleasure in it, so those who fear the Lord and submit to his will might also find not just pleasure but joy and hope, purpose and contentment. That's why we were created. We can rest in him by glorifying him. So we bow before him now, not seeing him as some sort of malevolent, iron-fisted dictator, but as a beloving and benevolent king. He has ordained you that you might give him glory, not through harsh punishment, not through hopeless slavery, but by calling him father and resting in his perfect will. This is your opportunity to see God for who he is. He is the purpose for your life. He's not just a purpose. He is the purpose. We must direct our lives to glorify him in everything that we do. Because God is sovereign. Let's pray. Lord God, we bow before you. We worship you as creator, as sustainer, as the one who sees time from beginning to end. And Lord, we know that our place in it is small. We recognize that somehow in the midst of all of it, you've chosen to use us anyway. You've chosen to take take us by the hand, and, and not just that, but save us, that we might glorify you. Lord, thank you. I pray that we will bow before you daily. We will turn to you and recognize how much we need you. God, our Savior and our King.